war, politics, social unrest, economic uncertainty, international conflicts, climate change. What is the significance of these current events? Where are we heading? Pastor Gary Webster shares answers from the Bible, giving you hope and certainty in the times ahead. Welcome to Countdown, Back to the Future. This episode is entitled, Countdown to Eternity. I tell you, isn't isn't the Bible marvellous? I don't know about you, but what what you see when you read these prophecies is suddenly it's directing us to great other great things in the Bible. Have you noticed that? That's the beautiful thing about Revelation. To understand it, you have to go back to some of the other passages, some of the stories, and they come alive. And so we, we start to understand it. Let's pray. Father, as we continue these seven seals, may our hearts burn within us. May we realize what a great God we have and how gracious he is to each one of us. Thank you, Lord, that you love the worst of sinners in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a little bit of a revision. Uh, We usually try to do this because, you know, there's quite a lot of material there, isn't there? So remember this scroll book, sealed with seven seals. What we've seen is Jesus takes it and he breaks those seals. And every one of those seals is talking about the journey from Jesus' ascension back to heaven, working for his people for his return. Those seven periods from the cross to the return of Jesus Christ. Each seal that's broken takes us a step closer to his return and the last empire. First seal, remember, triumphant Christianity, moving, conquering the world for Jesus Christ. Seal number two, persecuted Christianity, the red horse. Seal number three, apostate Christianity, darkness creeping in. Seal number five, four, I should say, we have death because famine leads to death, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. Now we move on to seal number, what is it? Five. Souls under the altar, says John. Notice what he sees. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In other words, God, are we always going to go through this terrible persecution? When are you going to do something about it? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. They're dead. They're sleeping, as it were, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. There's more yet to come. See, this is a time of martyrdom John is talking about. Well, this brings us to the period from 1517 to 1750 thereabouts, because you see great men of God in the church of Rome arose Men like Huss, well, he'd come a little before this, about 100 years before. Men like Martin Luther, John Knox, that great Scottish reformer, uh, John Calvin, 
Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. These were great priests in the Church of Rome who loved God. They found the scriptures that this is the rule of faith. They discovered the truth that we're saved by Jesus alone plus nothing. And, and works are the result, the fruit of being in that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, the church didn't like that because one of the things that, that Luther did was, was to say, hey, so why do you give, if, if we can go direct to Jesus and Jesus alone saves us, suddenly all the money-making rackets would have dried up for the church. And that's what he, 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 he exposed that we don't need all this paraphernalia because Jesus alone is sufficient. So you don't need to get indulgences and so on. Well, of course, the church didn't like that, sadly. And so many people were killed. See, the altar in the temple, that's where temple imagery. This was a place of sacrifices. But here it's people who are being sacrificed, souls under the altar. In other words, the followers of Jesus are dying for the cause of Christ. They're giving their life for Jesus in death. Now, I want to share with you some history that illustrates exactly what John is saying here. You can visit this place today. There was a famous council that was held right here in this building between 1414 to 1418, a long council, wasn't it? The Council of Constance. Why did this council, why was it held? Well, there was a problem in the church. There were four, three popes who were all ruling at the same time and sort of calling each other the Antichrist. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Three popes and the people said, come on, what's going on here? How can you have po three popes and how can they war against each other? This is wrong. So people in the church could see something needed to change. So the Empress Sigismund called the council here at Constance, but he called it for another reason. There was a godly priest from Bohemia called Jan Hus. Jan Hus was a godly priest, loved his Lord, and uh, he was preaching that Jesus and Jesus alone can save us. We only turn to Christ. He was preaching this, and so they did not want this man to be preaching. So there was a, this council. You can actually go to the jetty there in Constance, and you see this, this woman here. Interesting, she, she revolves. It's motorized today, but the citizens of Constance put this up. When you look a little closer, you see here's the king with his crown with no clothes on, and here's the pope with no clothes on. What's going on here? Well, when the lady turns around, you see, oh, this is a woman of the night. This is a lady of the night. She's a prostitute. Why did the citizens of Constance put this up? Because when this council was called, papal dignitaries, bishops, priests, cardinals, they turned up in the hundreds. And so did 700 prostitutes turn up to serve them. Now, now think about it. And that's one of the reasons people said, we need a change here. Because these guys are supposed to be celibate anyway. So what are the prostitutes even doing here? You can see how low things were going in the Christian church. At the same time, the church and the government would take this man, Jan Hus, who's just preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, not doing any of this stuff, but he was taken to this very place here in Constance. This is where he was burnt to death at the stake, simply for preaching the word of God while the prelates were sleeping with prostitutes. You see, you see what John's point is in all of this. The church had gone so far down that they could kill a godly man in the church for preaching truth. 
but they were upset about three popes and then they replaced and put a fourth pope in. But people could see something's wrong. Not only here in Constance, you can come here to the great Notre Dame Cathedral in France. Uh, when in uh, France, the king killed with the help of the church or the church with the help of the king killed some 20,000 people in St. Bartholomew's Massacre. These sort of great cathedrals, the bells rang for celebration of killing this many godly people. Right here in Oxford is the Martyr's Memorial where three bishops and priests died for Jesus Christ, Ridley, Latimer and Cranmer. When they were being burnt, as the flames were licking up around them, one of them was heard to say to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley, we shall this day light a fire in England that will never go out by the grace of God. Our death is going to be the way that people can come to Jesus. Thank God for godly priests and bishops in the church who love God enough to die for God. What a beautiful example to all of us. So this fifth seal from 1517 to 1798 when the church was experienced incredible persecution because of the great reformation that had taken place, the martyrs of Jesus. Then we come to the sixth seal, the natural events that we see John notices. Looked, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then after that the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the great the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the cave. Jesus is coming and they're not ready, in other words. They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. What a tragedy, people running from God who's been running to them. The face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? We've seen that haunting question, haven't we, in our series, but we want to look at some things that happened before that question. Earthquakes, great cosmic events in the sun, the moon and the stars, and then Christ's return. Now, what some of us may not have realised is that in the late 1700s, we saw some of these sorts of things that took the world's attention back then. Now, these are very similar to what Jesus talked about when he sat on the Mount of Olives here and talked about his signs of his coming and the end of the world. He gave events from the time of the apostles and the early church through the Dark Ages, and then he talked about these end time climactic events. Notice what he said. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, those dark ages, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then after that, the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they, he said, they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great trump sound of a trumpet 
and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. So what's going on here? Well, as that time of persecution came to an end in the 1700s, it started to peter out in Europe. We have what we call the Great Lisbon Earthquake of November 1, 1755. It came on what they called All Saints Day. A huge earthquake rocked, especially Portugal. And of course, with a, an earthquake usually comes what? A tsunami. This uh, earthquake was magnitude 8.5 to 9 on the Richter scale, so they reckon. You can even see some of the damage. It's still standing today. This is the Carmo Convent in Lisbon, what's left of it after the earthquake rocked this place. Not only that, but some 10,000 at the lowest estimate, 100,000 at the highest estimate, that many people died in this earthquake and what followed the tsunami, a 20 metre tsunami. Imagine that wall of water coming on top of you and it went six, 240 kilometres inland in some places. That was an incredible event. It was even felt in other places of Europe and even as far across as North America. Quite a mag an amazing event. But not long after, May 19, 1780, we have what we call, or historians call, the Dark Day. And notice uh, what happened. It began like any normal day, but by 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, the whole place turned dark. Quite eerie when you think of it. Notice that night the moon appeared a blood red colour. You can rest assured this got everybody's attention. The sun arose clear and bright. At about 9, that's 9 a.m., darkness gradually developed. This is what the historians back then tell us. This extraordinary darkness came on between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. and continued till the middle of the next night. I tell you what, you'd be thinking the world was coming to an end if you saw that, wouldn't you? Let me tell you, you wouldn't be, you'd be starting to read your Bible, I can guarantee. People read their Bibles when those planes whacked into those buildings, remember? They came to church that day by the thousands, all in different places. This got people's attention. In fact, that said, that evening the moon appeared blood red and the earth was wrapped in impenetrable darkness. Right, right there at 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, the chickens come back to the roost. The cows come back to, to, you know, all this sort of thing went going on. Even the animals thought something strange has happened. They went back to their barns and so on. The earth was wrapped in impenetrable darkness. Religious people thought a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Scientists conjectured, they weren't sure, it's caused to have been from smoke from fires on the frontier. No one's really sure, but it was a dark day and it came on the heels of that great event of that earthquake. But more was to follow. We have what we call the falling of the stars, the great Leonid shower of 1833. Some years later, this event took place. Now, you've been outside. I remember when we were, we were kids, my, my sister and I were talking about it yesterday. We used to sleep outside uh, and bring all our beds out and sleep out under the stars. It was a great time, wasn't it? Some of you probably did that. Uh, and, and you'd say, oh, there's a falling star. Five minutes later, there's another one. These didn't fall like that. We're told that these meteors fell at the rate of 100,000 per hour. Man, and it went on for nine hours. It must have been spectacular. A show of, you know, natural fireworks, so to speak. Well, 
They recorded this. No philosopher or scholar has told or recorded an event, I suppose, like that of yesterday morning. A prophet 1,800 years ago foretold it exactly. This was their picture of it. It's written up in scientific journals back then, scientific literature. Quite an amazing thing. Now, I'm sure we're going to see even more things as we near the end of time. But the point was, as persecution came to an end, that's what the Bible said, these things would take place. And it started to get everybody's attention. The late 1700s, Christ is coming, in other words. Sixth seal, second coming, leading to the second. The signs, the harbingers that Jesus is going to return. Now, why these natural events? Because God was wanting to get everybody's attention. I am coming again. I am going to return. And that brings us to the seventh seal, which has not yet happened. Silence in heaven. John says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, why would there be silence in heaven when we're leading up to the coming of Jesus? Because that's what he's telling us in this. There's a good reason. Remember what's going to happen when Jesus is going to come. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, heaven's going to be silent for a time because all the angels are coming with Jesus. That's one of the reasons for the silence. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect. There'll be noise down here, but there'll be silence up there. Now, why is Jesus coming with all his angels? Here's the reason. Because God is going to set up his last empire. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect. What a beautiful phrase in scripture. If the elect doesn't mean the super saints. The elect means those who are called and chosen. Why are they chosen? Jesus told a parable. He said there was a great big wedding feast and everybody was invited, even the people who were on the, out there in, 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 in Badland were invited, he said. And everybody was given a coat to put on in the wedding. It was a gift from the man who ran the party. But one man didn't have it on. He didn't put it on. He was given it, but he wouldn't wear it. And the king said, how come you don't have, how come you don't have the garment on? He was speechless. So he said, throw him out, throw him out. What was this coat? It was the gift of righteousness. Then Jesus said these words, many are called, but few are chosen. Why are they not chosen? Because they don't wear it. They don't put it on. They don't accept it. The gift from the master. So those who are chosen, those who are the elect, are the ones who accept Christ and his righteousness just as they are. That's what it's saying. And they will have the last empire with no tears, no pain, no sorrow, no death. As we said, don't we want that? The world desperately needs that today. Oh, how it does. Christ gathers his people. So silence in heaven because he's come to this world to pick up his kids. So this takes us to the second coming, the seventh seal. That's what we're looking at here. Christ gathers his people. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment. Jesus, in that same passage in Matthew, talked about many things. And in Revelation, he gave more. We've seen something. I want to remind you of some things. He said there will be wars 
and there will be rumours of wars. Right now we're hearing rumours of war. Have you noticed the gathering armies on the frontier with Ukraine, Russian forces? Have you noticed that? I was reading last night, BBC. Is Russia going to invade Ukraine? If it does, what is NATO going to do? Tell you what, there's, there's fear in the hearts of many people tonight. And what about China flexing its muscle in the South Sea Islands and other places around the Pacific? And that worries many people today. Let me tell you, the Christian does not have to be worried one iota. Because our peace is in Jesus. It's not in this world's leaders because they, they can make the wrong decision cause a big mess. But our peace is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Earthquakes, Jesus spoke about. We've surely seen those. Not only that, what about famines, tragedy, night after night, day after day, people starving to death while you and I have three square meals and some of us more. Wow. And then, of course, he spoke about pestilences. We know about all this one, don't we? The superbugs. Whatever it is, it's messing up the whole world, even if it's true or not true. Some think it's true, some think it's not true. Well, you have your opinion, but all I'm saying is it's messing up the world, whatever it is. Because <laughs> things are not the same wherever you go in the world today. And let me tell you, there's going to be more. And Jesus said there'll be pestilences. So get over it. <laughs> I mean that in a nice way. Get with Jesus. Get with Jesus, that's for sure. And, and you remember, we went through this great... It's prophecy. Why has God got these prophecies? Because he's trying to tell us we're nearing the end of time. That's where we are today in the feet of iron and clay. We're down in the end. You and I have been here in these programs, remember? We have seen, we went through this great prophecy of the 2,300 days. It ends in 1844. The judgment is on now. While you and I are sitting here, there's a judgment going on up there. I don't care whether you believe it or whether you don't. That doesn't change the facts. I don't care whether you believe the earth's flat or you believe whatever it is. That won't change the facts. And the Bible says this is where we are today and that's what's happening. Thank God we have an intercessor. Thank God we have a father who loves the whole lot of us. And he wants to save us all. But that's the reality. Not only that, we saw in our series that there's a growing global influence of the Vatican in the world today. We noticed that. We also saw that there's another beast that rises up out of the land, the rise of Protestant USA. I mean, you have to be a blind man not to be able to see that that's what's going on today. John predicted it 2,000 years ago. And then we saw, John said these two powers would come together. They would join forces in the end of time to try to force people to worship ultimately the devil. And that's why God exposes all this. I just raised those things because John just gives a big picture, but we're now down in the time when all these things are coming together that John predicted. Jesus is coming again. And the question that you and I need to front is, are we ready? A new day came to Pompeii on August 24, AD 79. People awoke to go about business as usual. I want you to imagine what it must have been like that day. They came down, left their homes, went down these very streets that day. Nearly 2,000 years ago, some came to the business district to do their business as usual. Others, no doubt, came down to the sports arenas, pleasure as usual. 
I can imagine some of them would have come down here to the psychics, their magicians, to, to, to find out what the future held. You know, look at the dust patterns in the bowls and basins so they could work out what your future is. They couldn't even see what was going to happen in a couple of hours. And then it happened. Mount Vesuvius blew its top and rained red-hot pumice on that city. You can imagine what it must have been like. These people wanting to get out of that city right then, wanting to, to, to escape the thing that was starting to unfold before their very eyes. Some of them came into the, the gates of Pompeii, but they left it too late and they perished at the very gates of Pompeii. The tragedy of not heeding the warning signs. Uh, you think what it must have been like for the people who came here to get the bread from the bakery shop. They found the bread 2,000 years later. But the people who came to get the bread, they left it too late. And they perished in Pompeii. I want you to imagine what it must have been like for the priests of the temple. Come rushing back, you imagine, imagine rushing back here to get their special objects of religious, their paraphernalia, their gods, their idols, their little statues, hoping that these gods would save them. But they left it too late. And these people perished in Pompeii. And they found these, what, was, what had been bodies inside these casts. This is just a plaster of Paris thing to they filled them up with. What a tragedy. Imagine Pansus. Here's his beautiful home. Man, it's a mansion, isn't it? You haven't got one like that even today. Pansus, imagine him come running back to get his, sake, get his, his, his objects of art, to get his special treasures. He left it too late and he perished in Pompeii with everybody else. Pompeii is a warning to all of us today of what the tragedy is when we fail to heed the warning signs and God has given us warning sign after warning sign after warning sign that the end of all things is near that soon Jesus is going to come nothing can be surer than that what about us today what about us are you and I are we ready for Jesus to come that's the question each of us must face and face it honestly. Are we ready for the Saviour to come? What must we do to be ready? Well, we've looked at that question a few times, haven't we? But I want us to notice the context of how we can be ready in this passage. It's a fantastic thing. Let's have a look. It's all got to do with this scroll book that's sealed with seven seals. Because what is this book? That's the question. And it's this very book that helps you and I and the events surrounding it that help you and I to be ready for this great event. Let's go back to where John began. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? Remember, it's in the hand of the Father on the throne. Who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the, the book and read the scroll or to look at it. Now, here's a question. Have you ever wept because you couldn't read a book? I doubt it. I doubt that there's one person here today that has wept because they couldn't read some book. Why does John weep? Because he can't read this book. Must be a pretty important book, right? 
Why would a prophet cry so much over not being able to have a little peek inside a book? Must be an important book. So let's have a look what it is. What is this book? Well, let's pick it up here with John. We need to go back to the time of the Babylonians. They're invading Israel in the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a house prisoner in his own in, in, in Babylon, in Jerusalem, I should say. The Babylonians are outside the city. They've conquered parts of the surrounding countryside. And he is 600 BC. He's a house prisoner. He's got a scribe called Barak. You read it in the book of Jeremiah. We come to the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is told by God, your cousin Hanamel, he's going to come to you and he's going to say to you, Jeremiah, you're my nearest relative by my field. And Jeremiah, you're to buy that field. What's well, in the hand of the Babylonians? What a stupid thing to do, we'd all think, wouldn't you? The Babylonians have got it. Why would God ask him to do this? Well, we won't go into all that, but let's pick up what's the meaning. Then just as the Lord had said, just as God told me what was going to happen, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and he said, buy my field, since it is your right to redeem, to buy it for me. Buy it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. See, what happened was if someone else bought it, it would pass out of the family. And so they couldn't get their hands on it. But if the nearest relative bought it, then when he, he got over his, his problem, see, he needs to sell it because he needs some money. When he, when he wants to get it back again, he can go to his relative and say, I'll give you the money back now and you give me the field back. You can keep it in the clan, the family. So buy it for yourself, says Hanamel. So I bought the field at Anathoth, that's where this field was, from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy, because they sealed one copy, as well as the unsealed copy. They made two copies of this thing. And I gave this deed to Barak, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, that's the scribe of Jeremiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. Now what's going on here? It's very clear to see what this is, isn't it? Very clear indeed. In other words, this is a deed of purchase. They would take a piece of parchment and they would write on, I, Jeremiah, I purchased this field uh, from my cousin Hanamel for X number of dollars, we would say today. And he would get some witnesses to sign that. He would sign it and then he'd roll it up, tie some string around it, put a piece of a wax, well, it wasn't wax so much, it was clay in those days. Put a piece of clay, take his ring. Now, it wasn't a ring, you know, because it looked nice. This was his seal. You notice here? Got his seal on it. And he would press that into the clay. And uh, this was the document that was sealed. One was not sealed. It was something, he had a copy of it. So, of course, when this document, let's say the house was burnt down, what would be left of this? All that would be left was that, isn't that right? The piece of baked clay. That's what we call a bulla a bulle in, uh, in, in, in archaeology. That's the seal impression. And we discovered, or the archaeologists discovered, the seal impression of this very man, Barak. This is the one that belongs. This is his seal impression. This little bit up here is a, a, a thumbprint. That's probably the very print of Barak the scribe. That's right at the very top corner. Interesting, isn't it? When you read the Bible and it says these things, let me tell you, we're not talking fairy tales here. This guy really existed. We've actually found his seal impression uh, some years ago now. 
So this is the deed, what we see in Revelation, this is the deed of something that's been purchased. It's the title deed. Someone's paid a price for something or someone. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. John, stop crying. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne. Let's just stop there. Isn't that a great phrase? In the midst of the throne. What's in the midst of the throne? Stood a lamb. Think about it. The very nerve center of the universe, God's throne room. Who is there? The lamb. The lamb, the lamb, Jesus. Heaven is a friendly place. There's a rainbow above the throne of God. That's a gracious sign in the Bible. Heaven is a warm place, friendly place. In the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Then he, the lamb, came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Only the lamb could open the scroll book. Why is that? How come only the lamb could open the scroll book? Well, there's a good reason. The lamb could open the book because the lamb paid the redemption price. He's the one who did it. It's as if Jesus came along and and he paid with his blood. He signed with his blood. Your eternal destiny, my eternal destiny, the destiny of everybody. Witnesses, those who accept Jesus, they become the witnesses, right? That's what the Bible calls. We witness to the grace of God through our life. (laughs) That's what happens. We sign on, so to speak. Now, when he had taken the scroll, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open it, says, for you were slain. That's the redemption price. And you have redeemed us. You brought us to God by your blood. Men, that's anthropos. That means men and women. Men and women out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Aren't you glad for that? God has no favorites. And we will reign on the earth. You see, back in the Garden of Eden, our first parents, our representatives, we lost our innocence our righteousness. We lost our peace, right? Because they started fight like cats and dogs right there in the Garden of Eden. They blamed each other. We lost our home. We lost our eternal life. But God promised a deliverer right back there in the garden. And then he came, our nearest relative. What is Christ called? Our brother. Our brother, our nearest relative. Our creator God became one of us. And what did he do? Marvel of marvels. What does the Bible tell us? Put it up there. Oh, get there. God's lamb redeemed us and our lost inheritance. I tell you what, Revelation chapter 5 is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. It tells us that you and I are very special. You and I matter to God. God loves you so much that he gave himself for you and I and the rest of the people out there. I tell you, this is unbelievable. It's the deed of something purchased. It's God's will and plan to save people from sin is what we're really looking at. God's plan that he set up. And how does it come to us? It comes to us through Jesus. I like how you and I can take part in this as we close. These are the ones who follow the lamb. Wherever he goes, these were Redeemed. This is a picture of God's people in this final conflict. They're being redeemed by 
this lamb. I'm going to ask you a question this afternoon as I ask myself, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ, really? Have you thrown yourself on God's mercy alone? Have you said to God, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross, I claim Jesus. Lord, I am nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing, but I claim what Jesus did for me. The truth of the matter is, when you and I do that and mean that, God means it too. <laughs> you and I are counted as if we never sinned. But there's more. Notice what it says. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Because they've been redeemed. That's why they follow Him wherever He goes. Not just in heaven. They've been following Him on earth. Here's the question I want to ask another one. Are you and I following Jesus in all His revealed will to you? Or are there some things in your life that you're putting on a shelf? I'll get around to it one day. But not today. I'll do it another day, but not now. My brothers and sisters, that's a dangerous game for any of us to play. The Bible always never says tomorrow, it says today. Now, the time to change things that need to be changed is today. Now is the time. Because you may not have tomorrow, nor may I have tomorrow. What about some of those things that we need to follow God in? Maybe it's the Sabbath thing. Some of you heard about the Sabbath, but maybe you're just not ready to put it into practice yet. Listen, my friend, follow what God says. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It may seem a heavy burden, but anything Christ asks of us to do, we need to do it. Because the Sabbath is about rest in Jesus. Maybe it's your body temple. We talked about that. One day I'll get around to following those health principles. No, my friend. Today is the time. Now is the time. Because what a beautiful thing. You, the Spirit of God lives in us. What a treasure. What about God's tithe? We talked about that. Maybe I'll do that another time. Listen, when we step out in faith, we will see the hand of God at work powerful in our life. We will see him work. No question about it. Maybe it's that call that comes ringing out of the last pages of the Bible. Come out of her, my people. Be one of my end time remnant. Uh, we find it hard to move out from what we should move out from. The church we love or whatever. Come out, my people, says God. Maybe it's this one, baptism. I'll do it one day. Maybe God's speaking to you about rebaptism. You've wandered from God, turned away from him, and he's been calling you back and he said, you need to get rebaptized. You need to put that old man down again. Why don't you say yes to God? Maybe you've never been baptized by immersion. New truth. This is a very important thing, a beautiful thing, because this is how we uh, are brought into the body of Jesus himself. These are very important things. Why does God put this in here? Because we're nearing the end of time. Jesus is coming soon. No question about it. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for the Bible, for this incredible panorama of human history that's rooted in Jesus Christ because he's the one who breaks the seals, the lamb, the friendly lamb who loves us so much that he gave his life for us. Lord, today, right now, we need to make some decisions. Not tomorrow. We may not have tomorrow. 
Father, while their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, if you want to say, Lord, here's my life. I want Jesus. I need him. I really haven't had him in my life. I've not really been born again. I can't say that for me to live is Christ. If that's your decision, you want to say, Lord, I want Jesus. Why don't you just raise your hand right now just to say, Lord, I need Jesus. <laughs> Maybe you've been playing games with God, even Christian games. Just because you're a pastor, just because you're even a leader in the church doesn't mean you're born again. The only way to be born again is to have this Jesus and to say, Lord, come into my life. Maybe tonight or today the Lord is speaking to you about follow the Lamb wherever he's calling you to follow. And you want to say, Lord, I need to follow you. Whatever it is, you know what it is you need to follow the Lord in. But today you want to say, Lord, I'm going to make that decision to follow you fully. Just raise your hand right now. Just raise your hand to say, Lord, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do what he wants. I want to accept Christ. I want to do what's right. I want to move forward from here on. Lord, thank you for the hands that are raised today. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of God that's so rich, so full, so free. And thank you that Jesus says to us, if you open the door of your life to me, I'll come in and, man, will we have a great time together. And that's the truth. When we have Jesus, we have everything. Thank you for being with us today. Help us to, re to remember every day to seek Jesus first. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to us. Now, Lord, bless us, keep us, Cause your face to shine upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Countdown Back to the Future, made available by the Victoria Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Vic Park SDA Church.
Carly Fletcher's album Eternity Together, that was Nothing in This World. And coming up next, Call to Praise will sing The Narrow Road. I was walking down the road of life, taking the only way I know, following footsteps that I've seen. Show. 
such a rugged path And I can't see beyond each curve It seems to be such a long and lonely road Not many take it, so I've heard Compiled by Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Koval Smith. This story is entitled, The Prison Doors Opened. Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 28 says, At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, Supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Wow! What an amazing passage! To be honest, I have never seen anything like that, where prison doors were opened by the hand of God not to mention the earthquake or the steel shackles and chains falling off prisoners like leaves falling off trees and fall. Then again, maybe I have. Let me explain. For some time, I have been interested in prison ministry. Off and on, our local church has had a program where we ministered to the prisoners. I went on a few occasions to support the church. Recently, in the last year, I was asked to take part as a leader in a prison ministry. I immediately asked my best friend to work with me as a partner on this. When he accepted, I felt confident 
to do the same. We would come in once or twice a month and put a program together. The program would include song service, prayer and a sermon. The prisoners would join in and seem to really appreciate the Bible passages we shared. Rather quickly, we found ourselves no longer doing this to support the church, but to support God's people in prison. Soon the prisoners wanted more. They wanted a Sabbath, a Saturday service. The problem was that the prison chaplain told us, before we even started this ministry, that he would never let a Sabbath service take place. No reason was given and we never asked for it in the first place. Although we greatly desired a Sabbath service, we felt that pressing the issue in any way at this time would be a poor decision, especially since the chaplain had so clearly voiced his stance. Time went by and the ministry seemed to be thriving. Once again, the chaplain approached us. I know I told you this before, but there will be no Sabbath service. I remember thinking, hey, what is your problem? We are not even mentioning it to you. Instead, I politely responded with, I understand that, and we haven't mentioned it, have we? He answered, no, but don't start thinking about it. More time passed, and the chaplain told my partner that some of the prisoners were making a little noise about wanting a Sabbath service. My partner reminded him that our group had not encouraged them to do so. As it turned out, those prisoners were not just making a little noise, they were praying. Our group had never mentioned to the prisoners anything about a Sabbath service for fear of losing the time slot we already had. Besides, we were told not to say anything to them about it, and we honoured our word to the chaplain. The prisoners were responding to our current program, so we didn't want to jeopardise that. I, for one, wasn't afraid to stand up for the Sabbath or any of my other beliefs, but things were going well and following the rules was the best we could do to keep it that way. Later on, the chaplain proceeded to advise my partner to discourage any further Sabbath service discussion among the prisoners. He basically insisted that the prisoners keep their mouths shut about the whole matter. After giving it some thought, we concluded that we would continue to honour our word to the chaplain and make no mention whatsoever about having service on Sabbath. I reasoned that the Holy Spirit was at work, so we should let him work. The chaplain kept a close eye on us, which was part of his job, and although speaking to the prisoners for program purposes was fine, talking to them on a one-to-one -one basis seemed to make him uneasy. We may have said nothing, but we did something. We continued to pray and ask God to open a way for us to have service on Sabbath. A couple of weeks later, one of the prisoners told me that it looked like we would be able to meet on Sabbath soon. I was happy, of course, 
but I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. One week following the prisoner's observation, the chaplain told us that there had been a change. Starting next week, if we wanted, we could come in on Sabbath mornings for an hour. Praise God! I wanted to jump up and down and give the chaplain a big hug, but instead I just said a grateful thank you. I believe that, without a doubt, God opened the doors to the prison as surely as he did for Paul and Silas. The shackles that kept us from worshipping with the prisoners on Sabbath fell off like the shackles on the prisoners in Acts 16. The doors flew open and light poured in. Sabbath service was now more than a blessing, it was a miracle. A reflection associated with the story comes from the Great Controversy, page 627. Though enemies may thrust them into prison, yet dungeon walls cannot cut off the communication between their souls and Christ. One who sees their every weakness, who is acquainted with every trial, is above all earthly powers, and angels will come to them in lonely cells, bringing light and peace from heaven. The prison will be as a palace, for the rich in faith dwell there, and the gloomy walls will be lighted up with heavenly light, as when Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises at midnight in the Philippian dungeon. The Prison Doors Opened was written by Rudy Hall, President of Remnant Publications in Coldwater, Michigan. Remnant produces Christian books and resources for spiritual growth and evangelism. You can visit remnantpublications.com for more information. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.